0: Hi, I'm Melanie Welch, and this is the Unmaking Me podcast. Here, we have a space to talk about the experience of transforming our lives to build a life full of joy and purpose. If you're feeling unsatisfied with your life, even though you've achieved all the things that society has wanted from you, this is a place for you. We connect about our experience as we learn, grow, and heal those tender parts of ourselves to allow for something beautiful to emerge. These are just my opinions, beliefs, and experiences, and in no way a substitute for care from your qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to Unmaking Me. I'm Melanie Welch. This is a super important episode. I encourage you to find a time and space to really listen to this whole episode. I think it has the potential to be life-changing for us as individuals and in our communities and our organizations. So I strongly encourage you to spend some time listening to this episode with Dr. Christine Gibson. Christine is a family physician in Calgary, Canada with a background in justice work, medical education, and global health. She's a skilled facilitator and speaker and is engaged in building individual and community resilience. Her writing creates the woven narrative between her interests, well-being, trauma recovery, and the power of story. And she's a skilled trauma therapist, understanding that stress lives in human and community bodies and is the author of the upcoming book, Modern Trauma Toolkit, available in May, 2023. You can connect with Christine at her website, christinegibson.net. And she is on TikTok as at TikTok Doc. I hope this conversation is meaningful for you and that you take something away. I certainly did. Hello, and welcome to Unmaking Me. I'm Melanie Welch. I am very excited to be here with Dr. Christine Gibson. She is someone that I have been looking forward to speaking to for a while, and she has a lot to share with us. So We're going to have a great conversation. Welcome, Christine.
1: Thanks. I'm excited to be here.
0: So let's dive in. One of the first questions I like to ask people is about their story. How your story got you to where you are today.
1: Mm. It's a story with a lot of twists and turns, I think. I was not one of those kids who kind of gunned for medical school. So I, I remember my mom taking me to an occupational therapist to have a series of like aptitude tests to find out like what I should do with my life. And I was saying to her at that point, like after high school, that I really wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, writers really struggle to make a living. It's a very hard career to choose. Why don't you pick another career, learn something about life and then write about it. And I was like, fair enough. That seems reasonable. So it wasn't like she was talking me out of it, but she was kind of talking me around it and saying, I think even back then, like you have an aptitude for many different things. Why don't you kind of meet your potential with more than one of them? So I had been writing like poetry (laughs) from that time through med school and residency. I started writing fiction in my early thirties about historical fiction about my family like great great grandparents migrating from Ukraine here and then kind of a cli-fi modern day less comfortable version of of the future where we might be facing some of those same themes so mm. I've been writing fiction for a long time and it was something I always did in the background but didn't really think of it as something that I could turn into something more tangible if I had sold that book to a small press I was going to be really excited. And so it's been really interesting to see that even as I became a physician, tried to figure out what my life looked like within medicine, that the writing has come back around and become something that I feel kind of closed the loop and got me Mm. full circle. And I can say, Hey, now I'm a physician and an author. Mm. Yeah. It's just like, even just to say those words, (laughs) it feels amazing.
0: It's such an accomplishment. As you said earlier, as physicians, we tend to devote a lot of our lives to medicine, it becomes very all consuming. And yet we're often very interesting people because you need to do a lot of things to get into medical school, but then our lives tend to shrink and we lose those other pieces of ourselves. It takes a lot of commitment to get back to those other pursuits. So I I really respect and admire that you've done that
1: commitment and privilege, like the way my life changed, yes. didn't have kids. And so I think people who are running a household, especially like women who often have these dual roles and parenting their parents and all of these things, I had privilege where I could explore a lot of other avenues. Like I could do international work for 10 years. There's a lot of different things that I've done in my career that because I haven't had that family experience, I've been able to explore a lot of other things. And also because I think I chose family medicine. If I'd gone into a more honed specialty, I don't think it would have given me all of the flexibility that I've had. That's
0: really interesting. I was reading somewhere you were talking about generalism and your interest in transdisciplinary work and the fact that generalism has really lent itself to a lot of your path. I've really realized how passionate I am about that concept of generalism recently. I think it makes me a good doctor, but it also makes me a more interesting person. And I've been trying to pursue those other aspects for myself of my interest as well. How has your lens that incorporates this more transdisciplinary approach and a generalist approach influenced your path?
1: Yeah, I think it definitely pushed me in the direction of family medicine. Like I did medical school in Toronto and family medicine there is considered day class a you know as soon as people find out that you're going to go into family medicine they're just like oh are they not that bright or are they not that interesting mm-hmm. and so i was in the top 10% of my grad class and as were many other folks who went into family practice but it, i think it's actually the challenge of family medicine that really attracted me so when mm-hmm. i when i was doing all my clerkship electives i remember thinking well and rotations i like everything i like i just find everything super fascinating and for me to kind of choose one thing like one Organ system, and then one disease, and then you kind of get more and more narrowed down. And I just thought, there's no way I want to do that with my life. I really want to be curious and explore a lot of things. And I knew it would be challenging because you have to, you know, maintain your skill set and your knowledge base around so many different things. And even when I graduated, I kind of got talked into doing hospitalist work to pay my loans. And I was really intimidated by it because it's basically internal medicine, but without all of the study. And after a couple of years where I kind of got my comfort zone, I, I loved it. it. It was just like detective work every day. And what I hadn't anticipated was how many social issues I'd be managing and cultural issues I'd be managing because of where I was working. And I loved that about generalism. So I could do very briefly some emergency work, family practice, hospital-based practice, And now I'm doing more in the palliative care world because I'm involved in medically assisted death. And over the last five, six years, I've become a trauma therapist. I mean, definitely psychiatry gets to do that kind of thing, but family doctors can really do it all. When Mm -hmm. I was doing international work supporting the development of family medicine, and I've been running a nonprofit since about 2012, it's the family doctors that are making the biggest difference because good primary care can do most things.
0: I completely agree and I think it's actually why we're so good at all of those things because we do take into account people's stories we understand their context as you said you were addressing all these social issues that came up for people and understanding who people are as humans as whole humans of course Mm -hmm. is critical to understanding their health yeah that's I think a great segue into the work that you've been doing recently around trauma your new book the modern trauma toolkit comes out in
1: May congratulations thank you Yeah. It's been an amazing journey. I'm really excited about that. And I never, like, I remember being in residency and I had some friends who were working at a medical clinic when one of the preceptors had a interest in mental health and counseling. And everyone was like, oh no, you got that preceptor. It's going to be so (laughs) hard. And I remember having that opinion. I remember thinking, why would you want to do mental health counseling? But what really drew me to it is as I was having a like an actual family practice that I was paneled to for the first time in my career, I'd say seven years ago is when I started that. So like past my mid-career mark so far, I, uh, I just recognized that trauma was the root of so much of what I was seeing. And because of when I graduated was 99, I didn't have the benefits of understanding the ACEs study, like mm-hmm. adverse childhood experiences, which basically proved that every single adverse experience you have as a kid exponentially increases your risk of every single mental and physical condition that we know. And it it just was a game changer. Once I understood that and epigenetics, I was like, this is the root of all that I'm seeing. And no wonder I'm putting out the same fire every day. If I could actually address the roots more effectively that would be a game changer. And that got me started into thinking, well, what does it look like to heal trauma? And is it even possible? Mm -hmm. And it was, I I was amazed to learn what certain psychotherapists and certainly not all of them are trauma-informed or trauma-trained, but it was such a game changer for me to feel like I had that level of efficacy and competency around one of the things that's at the root of a lot of what we see.
0: It's so important to be able to address those root causes in everything that we do. And I haven't read your book yet, but from what I've read, you talk about the individual aspects, but also the systemic pieces that we have to address, which of course is critical when we're talking about trauma. And as people are situated in communities, that has a huge impact on them.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I I have a lot of different interests. So when I was deeply involved in medical education, I started a residency in health equity. And one of the other passions I have is around climate science advocacy and trying to get better solutions around the climate emergency that we face. Mm -hmm. And I've come to understand that our non-response to climate is actually dissociative. Like people are just putting their hands on sand and hoping things will change or someone will solve it for them. And the leadership who kind of keeps entrenching this problem, they're just trying to maintain the status quo and maintain their physical and psychological safety at the expense of everyone else's. And I hadn't understood that intersectionality and stuff till I studied systems design and social innovation, design thinking, how to do advocacy and writing and trauma. And once I kind of put all those pieces together, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a really rich place to be living. So yeah, this morning I had the pleasure of, I'm on the Calgary Climate Advisory Committee Mm -hmm. and we were invited by an global economic forum to do foresight strategy like what happens if we have hot house earth scenario what happens if we turn towards indigenous reconciliation and ways of knowing what happens with these different biotech solutions and i never dreamed that they would let a doctor on the committee but they do understand that for me to look at the health and mental health implications of the climate emergency is deeply important and I was bringing like all parts of my skill set around community development and community engagement into the conversation. And that to me is just such an important place to be living. And I, I feel really privileged to have like a voice at those kinds of tables now.
0: Your skill set is so diverse to be able to then contribute to a conversation like that, that you can have a seat at that table, which is such an important table to have a health lens and a mental health lens at a table like that, of course. I think that concept that you mentioned around the dissociative aspect of of so many pieces the climate i certainly had that experience for the longest time it took me the longest time to start to really be able to look at what what are the steps that i could take as an individual to address the climate emergency because it felt so overwhelming i have subsequently recognized that it's that step-by-step process of learning and taking action and being part of groups that make a difference
1: it doesn't lie on the individual i was so glad that you actually brought up that when we look at individual trauma and individual health issues, we're really missing the bigger picture. And Mm -hmm. I think as physicians, we really get focused on those one-on-one interactions and we don't have the opportunities as often as we need to, to actually like scale up and see, what are the bigger systemic issues causing this? And we just don't have the time and the Mm -hmm. energy and Mm -hmm. we aren't often given the resources. One of the things that I think will help the physician burnout, which is so wildly prattle villain is feeling less hopeless about the major challenges that we face, and that the the communities that we work with face. so so we don't have all the resources. They certainly don't have all the resources. What does it look like to be able to make bigger changes in community? Mm-hmm. And I think physicians, we do have a voice that people listen to. I don't know if it's always the case. Because people are stopping to trust scientists and medical professionals. And I think Mm -hmm. part of that is because we fail to recognize how much trauma we are culpable with in systems. I know I had to really examine mine. Like we contribute to harm. Certainly never our intention, but it does happen yes
0: i think that's so important to recognize that there's almost like a subconscious knowing that we do that and it's part of our systems and our culture in medicine and then trying to untangle that ourselves has it's a complex process i do think that's a huge contributor to burnout for for healthcare professionals
1: yeah and when we get blamed for things it adds to like the shame that we already feel because we all make mistakes and it is horrifyingly hard on us because we Mm -hmm. tend to be perfectionists. I mean, most of us are pretty purely motivated around just wanting to help people. Mm -hmm. And then we find out we've contributed to the opioid crisis. And then we find out, for example, how much sexual dysfunction and even permanent changes SSRIs can cause. I did not know that. Like the kinds of things that I'm learning around our culpability and it's a hard thing to sit with. And I, I think the more that we get comfortable having these harder conversations and these harder self-reflections. And we're not really given the opportunity to do that. Like there are these things called balance groups where physicians can like sit around and talk about really hard things, but it's not something that's standard practice. Mm -hmm. And like for us to kind of look after each other as a community, I think is really cool. I mean, there's Facebook groups doing that now, which is amazing
0: it is it's been interesting to see this process it really feels like it's at its infancy that we're allowing ourselves permission as a profession to actually take care of ourselves even though we know that there's no possible way we can provide care for others if we're not healthy ourselves and yet the culture of medicine is set up that we should always our own needs should be relegated we should never be taking care of our own physical and mental needs I heard you speak about that in, I think, another interview where you're talking about the dissociation that happens, you know, for us in our training, we learn to dissociate. Our own health ends up taking a, you know, a a backseat. And a lot of that is inherent in the culture of medicine. These are some of the pieces that we have to begin to change in order to change our relationships with our patients and the communities we work within.
1: Yeah, I do think that dissociation gets a bad rap because it's something we actually need to be able to do and we have Mm to. Have that skill set physicians are extraordinarily good at it i mean if you think about how much death and pain and suffering we deal with on the daily we are careful to maintain boundaries and not get enmeshed with it but when we're good doctors is when we have like heart connections with the people that mm-hmm. we serve and we recognize our common humanity if we really did that we would be just so embroiled in suffering so we have to figure out what's that balance between feeling connected We're all
0: on that journey together in some way or another. (laughs) Can we talk a bit about the concept of trauma? I heard you also speak about big T, little t trauma and and your perspective on that. And I've always been uncomfortable with those terms. Could you speak a bit about how you define trauma?
1: I'm wondering if you saw, I did that on a TikTok. So we haven't mentioned like this ridiculous thing that I started two years ago now is posting almost daily TikToks. So I'm TikTok Trauma Doc. And it blew up, like people really want to talk about trauma and mental health. And mm-hmm. it's been a really amazing creative outlet for me. I mean, not all my TikToks are creative. Sometimes I'm just like talking, but one of the TikToks that I've made talks about that difference between big teen, little t trauma that a lot of mental health speakers discuss. And I I don't think it's super useful. So it's not that I never use it, but it's not the most important thing. So big T traumas are meant to be the ones that are life-changing where they're they're threatening the life of you or somebody you love or threatening one of your foundational beliefs. And little T traumas would be things like microaggressions, racism, classism, sexism, ableism, harms against LGBTQ communities or neurodiversity. Those are not always little. Mm-hmm. And they really add up synergistically, yes, so trauma is our neurophysiologic response to internal and external input, so internal you can have a disease process that causes trauma, so it 's not necessarily just something from the environment, and there can be man made traumas or relational traumas which are very common in children like i don 't think we really recognize how much of us have attachment trauma and how that manifests and those of us in the caregiving professions, we are really good at fawning and people pleasing because we were taught at very young ages that the more perfect we are, the more we deserve love and care. Mm -hmm. We got to unpack that. So I do think that trauma is much more prevalent than we had known. And it's being more discussed now. And then the kinds of things that can cause a trauma response in the body vary. They're personal. They have to do with your painful past experiences, your epigenetic lineage, like what happened to your ancestors. That really matters. It changes Mm -hmm. your DNA and the, the way that you have resources in terms of like people support, your sense of meaning, you know, time as a resource. There's so many different things that kind of Result in how trauma will manifest in a person's mm-hmm. nervous system. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea how anxious I was as a human, especially in the hospital. Like when that pager went off, my blood pressure would skyrocket. Mm-hmm. And I just started to think of that as normal. Then I started to do 24 hour blood pressure monitoring. I was like, holy crow, lady, you're going to stroke. Wow. <laughs> you're actually in a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Your systolic blood pressure is 220. Oh and, and like, the middle of your night shift, things are bad. You feel nauseated for a reason. No kidding. And then I was like, how much trauma am I putting on my body to do this work? And how much am I not acknowledging around the solutions that are absolutely necessary for me to survive as a human? Mm-hmm. That brings
0: me to a question I had around this false concept that we hold in medicine around distinguishing the body from the mind as if they're two completely separate entities And I've been on this journey myself of recognizing how much I need to actually focus on my body to be able to heal my own traumas. How do you approach that work? I know it's a part of the work that you're doing in your book.
1: Yeah, I had always been taught, as I'm sure you were, that the gold standard therapies are cognitive behavior therapy. And for trauma, we then add some prolonged exposure. And a lot of these are brain-based technologies. And It wasn't until I started really looking at the literature and what clinicians are doing in practice that I recognize there's kind of two camps. And I would say I straddle the camps, but once a body has been through trauma and your limbic system, like your emotional brain in the midbrain is activated. So anything that could be a danger or threat to the organism gets filtered through the amygdalas to decide, is it threatening or not? And when things are threatening, then the amygdala send you into that cortisol cascade. And a lot of us live there, especially mm-hmm. as physicians. We're just racing from one thing to the next. Mm-hmm. We rarely take time out to go to the bathroom and engage our parasympathetic parts. Mm-hmm. When we have really heightened emotions, which a lot of what we do is, or we disconnect ourselves from those emotions. But mm-hmm. when our limbic system is, activated, we actually don't have access to our neocortex, our thinking brain. A lot of folks who've been through trauma, they'll say to me, I just don't have any concentration. My memory's shot. Have I made permanent brain damage from this, 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 my coping strategies? And I'll be like, maybe, but probably not. You probably just don't have access to it yet because your amygdalas are constantly firing and it's sending all of your energy to your heart and your muscles because your brain body system thinks you should be running away or fighting off a problem, engaging your sympathetic tone. And I didn't really understand how much that would manifest in somatic sensations. So, so much of what we're seeing is actually an over-engagement of sympathetic tone, Mm -hmm. especially that's very cultural because I work with refugees and they will present Mm -hmm. with headaches, GI upsets, rather than saying to me, I have these symptoms of anxiety, it's manifesting. Mm as these body-based symptoms and what I didn't recognize was that. These symptoms are interpreted by the brain as perceptions and the brain might say, Oh, I'm anxious. Or in medicine, we often just say, Oh, I'm at work. This is what work feels like. And we kind of interpret those body sensations and they get normalized and validated over Mm -hmm. time and a really amazing doorway into resetting the nervous system tone and having actually a balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic. And it's more than that too. There's vagal tone. So there's this polyvagal theory that a lot of physicians don't know about, but clinically for me, it was a total game changer, Mm -hmm. understanding the dual functions of the vagus nerve. The more that we understand our own nervous systems and the more that we have the capacity to intervene and rebalance ourselves and kind of hit the reset button, the more we can show up in good social engagement as the compassionate and connected humans that we want to be in Mm -hmm. this job. And I did not have those skills. I was never taught. No, that's what fascinates me is that we're expected to do such a high level of engagement
0: with people, connection, thinking at a very high level. And there are so many aspects of care for ourselves that we're not taught. Obviously there's a lot we're still learning as a society about these topics. If someone's embarking on a road to healing for themselves,
1: where would you suggest they start? Are there some initial tools or strategies that you would recommend? Obviously I recommend my book. I sent it to Catherine Smart. She's a friend of mine who was recent president of the Canadian Medical Association. And this quote didn't make it into my endorsement section, but she flat out said, every physician and medical student needs to read this book. We don't understand how trauma is landing in our own bodies or in the patient's bodies until we have this knowledge. And I had to spend five, six years to gain this knowledge. I I was basically working part time clinically and then part time just studying ravenously everything I could read. And th- that's the reason why I'm doing a doctorate now, is because I remember thinking during those five years, I'm studying 300 books. I'm taking 20 different courses and getting certified in so many things. Why is this not getting me more letters after my name? Like, this is <laughs> random stuff that gets on your resume. And I did find a doctoral program that said you could get a doctorate by public works. You had to critical appraisal of mm-hmm. the work that you've done in the world. Wow. And it's been really good for me because both of these platforms with the book and TikTok and running two nonprofits and a company now, it's giving me more privilege and leverage where I want to show up in a good way. And I have more capacity for it because I have more control of my nervous system now. Mm-hmm. So what does it look like <clears throat> to show up and have more awareness? So I think my book is a pretty good template for that. One of my greatest teachers works out of the Arizona Trauma Institute. His name is Dr. Eric Gentry, and he is not well-known in the field of medicine. There's much bigger names that are well-known, but to me, he just gets it. And he Mm -hmm. has a YouTube channel designed for health professionals where he actually releases a lot of his information around what complex trauma looks like. And he just puts it out on YouTube. He's really trying to get this information out into the public, but you can do like his three-day workshop on lots of different platforms around complex trauma. That to me was absolute gold. And what's interesting, and he says this, is you can learn so many different psychotherapeutic modalities and they all have very similar outcomes. So it really doesn't matter what you learn in the alphabet soup of trauma therapy, to me, it makes sense to have one cognitive and one somatic tool in your toolkit that you can access, but the outcomes are similar. What really matters is attunement. And we only can achieve attunement when we are in our own ventral vagal system, which is part of the polyvagal theory where we are using facial expression, tone of voice, re- reciprocal connection with another human. To decide if we're safe or not physicians we get behind those computers or those desks we're not making eye contact we're not keeping our voices safe because we do have another patient booked in 10 minutes and we're not even in our own ventral vagal systems attunement and healing happens when we can be that and then help a person mirror that until they learn how to stay in their safe nervous system but so few of us are in our own. That's
0: such a huge revelation for me over the last few years has been that piece and how there are a lot of guidelines that we can follow and a lot of information that we can share. None of it really matters as much as in my experience anyways, truly finding that connection with a patient that really allows us to both be human, I suppose, ultimately.
1: Totally. And I I do think that we are encouraged to slough off our humanity. Like we're told to ignore the signals from our body. What do you mean you need to go to the bathroom? What do you mean you need to eat or drink? What do you mean you need to sleep? What? Like I learned that lesson for 17 years as an inpatient doctor, but we all kind of are entrenched in that mentality where we don't show up as fully human. And Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the reasons we're getting such a pushback from the community is saying, this is not what we want. We just want you to be human to actually care about me in a very authentic way. Mm-hmm. And I think some of us allow ourselves to do it, but we kind of have to push past this internalized vision of professional boundaries. You can't love your patients. That's weird. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, you can't love them in a romantic way, but can you care about them really deeply?
0: You must. Yes. Oh, that's so powerful, Christine. I think that's really important. And I think we need to have these conversations with each other as physicians. I had a patient a few weeks ago she was going through something very difficult. She said, "Can I give you a hug?" And I had this moment where part of me was like, "Of course." And then there was a part of me that was thinking, "What is the college gonna think if I give her a hug?" And of course, I did, and it was a very important moment, I think, in her healing. But then there's this part of me after that and is starting to think about how exactly that I've internalized this definition of professionalism that I've started to realize, I don't think is is actually reflective of what my definition of professionalism is now.
1: I'm hoping that things will start changing because it has to change in how we're taught and how we're led. And the people who taught us are traumatized by patriarchy and colonialism and capitalism and the things that are harming the collective. And they were much more entrenched in it. So as more people who are younger and people in more female identifying bodies have power and leadership, I do think these structures will change, but it's taking far longer than I had hoped. I, I see a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's, I think for us to recognize, identify and acknowledge our own traumas and like really do the healing work deeply for ourselves is, is key. And I, I don't know that we're encouraged to do that sufficiently. We're told self-care looks like taking a week off or setting time aside for meditation Yes. And so mm-hmm. like in trauma therapy, there's three stages, right? There's, there's safety and grounding. So Judith Herman calls this safety. I call it noticing, like noticing your own nervous system. She calls it remembrance and mourning in the second phase where it's p- trauma processing. Mm-hmm. I call it shifting. Like how can you actually shift your nervous system, shift your neural pathways away f- from stress responses. And then the third phase is she calls connecting and I call resourcing. So there's three phases to trauma treatment. And I find that a lot of the physician wellness programs, they really just get you to first phase. Like mm-hmm. how can you spend some time in safety or how can you sp- spend some time in connection in phase three? Where does it actually have us do the deep work? Mm-hmm. Like ripping open our guts, really, really looking at the guilt and the shame and the trauma that we've faced because we have. Yes. Yes. Yes,
0: that is the critical piece to moving us forward as a profession and then fostering those connections, further connections with our patients and the community, because as we've talked about, there is this sense that we're not really listening and we're not really paying attention to people's needs. And and partly that's because we're not listening to our own needs. Yeah. One of the things I really admire about you is the path that you've taken is the incorporation of all these other broader concepts and perspectives one of my favorite books is a daniel pink book a whole new mind where he talks about the value of learning art and design in systems thinking and you've done so much of that work i know you've done some work in design thinking how has that influenced that system lens that you take
1: yeah that was a really big game changer for me like i've had some influences along the way Alyssa rankin was an obstetrician at one point in california And she also experienced burnout and she led this Institute whole health medicine initiative, Mm -hmm. WHMI. And I joined that shortly after I was caught in the earthquakes in Nepal. Mm -hmm. And it allowed me to see with a more open perspective, all of the facets of the human health system. I was not paying attention to. And then my friend Andrea, because we were doing kind of climate advocacy work together. She said, really studying social innovation helps you be a system entrepreneur, a system change maker. And at that point in burnout, really knowing how to change systems was important because you feel very helpless without these skills. So I did a certificate program out of MRU in design thinking and in social innovation. And then I did a residency, actually. It's so funny, not a medical residency. It was a one month program at the Banff Center when Mm -hmm. they had a business and leadership stream oh. and we actually got to immerse ourselves in the field of social innovation for a month wow. Ate and, and breathed it mm-hmm. and i think four of the 20 in my cohort were in health and the rest were in all kinds of other industries but we all got to bake our ideas together which was incredible so i've had some really amazing opportunities to really think of systems change and so when the book opportunity came my way i mean initially someone was like, hey, you should write a book. And then it turned out because I had an agent because I'd been writing fiction for a while. He's like, I think you could get a better contract than that. So he shopped my proposal around and we got a great deal. It was really much more than I realized you could do with writing. And I really thought, what is the message that I want to get out in the world? And so much of it was around systems, like the systems Mm -hmm. causing trauma that are entrenched in our social construct and then the systems change that are possible when we know these solutions for me it's just the tip of the iceberg and the stuff that i've been able to be exposed to but i'm hoping that it'll generate a lot of catalytic conversations but we'll see i i don't really need to be like the person who knows a lot of things my aim is to be a bit of a bridge around knowledge translation and help plant seeds for people. Mm-hmm. And they will be the ones to help them grow or not. And for some people, the seed might just be, how can I heal my nervous system? How can I heal my relationship with my ancestors? How can I do some work in anti-oppression? And for others, it might be like, how are we going to disrupt the systems that continue to harm us? And that's both professionally and then in the bigger community and ecosystems.
0: Love the concept of that seed planting. And then it is a collective then effort to make those huge system changes that we do need to make as a collective ultimately. You mentioned some of the work that you've done, some of the organizations. From what I understand, you've got a new initiative around trauma-informed care in organizations. Can you tell us a bit about that
1: piece? It's quite new. We've done some pilots to create a curriculum. So myself, other physicians and psychologists, and some people who are also have an understanding of organizational development in business. We've co-founded a company called Safer Spaces Training Programs. Mm. And along with it, a nonprofit called the Belong Foundation, which would allow us to do this work for free or low cost for communities and needs. There's an entrepreneurial aspect to it, but there's also making sure that we're really connected to community that mm. has been placed at risk. And also contributing to Indigenous well being. It's so easy for us to just say, well, I'm going to make a land statement at the beginning of a talk and think we've done our job, but we're going to make a really strong commitment to partnering and accountability. So we have four different curriculum lined up. What we've been piloting so far is safe spaces, so trauma informed spaces. How can we create an environment? internally and externally, and how can we be really deliberate about making sure that we have a safe space for our patients? And so this is something that we obviously believe that health professionals should be very adept at, and our training is non-existent or insufficient right now. And I also think that every self-regulating profession should be doing this. So teachers Mm -hmm. should be doing this, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: dentists should be doing this, there's a lot of people who are in charge of significant relationships where trauma can happen. And I think we do have this responsibility as a self-regulating professional to, to be doing as good as we can. Mm-hmm. So the way we've designed it is there's going to be beginner, medium, advanced levels of point of entry. And the goal will be to get everyone to an advanced level of all four branches. So trauma-informed spaces, psychological first aid, safer communication strategies. So we're updating what we've been taught around crucial conversations and nonviolent communication for mm. the modern era, and then trauma-informed DEI. Because I think there's a lot of work being done in in DEI spaces that isn't really acknowledging how traumatic it is for people yes. who have been historically oppressed and marginalized. So one of our Black psychologists on the team is leading that initiative. I just want to put it out there that that's, that's not me. So yeah, I, I'm really excited about this work, mm. and I, I don't know where it's going to go. We're not quitting our day jobs to kind of put all of our eggs in this basket, but I am really hopeful that this is something that we're going to start with workshops and this learning. And then at some point we're going to actually start shipping HR software to major organizations and professional bodies. So Mm. our intended aim is to disrupt the HR landscape. I see.
0: It's really exciting. And all these large organizations, there's certainly a push towards understanding people's experiences and having a more trauma-informed lens, but to take action on it in large organizations has been so challenging. I think having some specific tangible steps that organizations can take and that we can take as individuals within organizations is going to be extremely important. Are there some recommendations that you can make to us now as we're starting on that path towards trauma-informed care in our organizations? What would you recommend we start with?
1: I think it has to start with us. Trauma-informed starts with you showing up in fight, flight, or freeze. Are you showing up dissociated? Are you showing up in your sympathetic tone? And I know for a lot of my career, I did. It's not to say that I wasn't able to make connections with patients or other staff members, but I was very limited because Mm -hmm. of that issue. Mm -hmm. So what does it actually look like to show up in social engagement mode with your ventral vagal system? So, really befriending your nervous system. There's a cool program. So, the polyvagal theory, there's a clinician named Deb Dana who has taken it and t- turned it into a lot of skill sets. And she has a program on Sounds True for clinicians. She actually has some training programs where you can learn this skill set. So, I'm a huge fan of Deb Dana's work. She uses verbiage that I don't use with patients around. Ventral vagal, dorsal vagal. I just call it low activation, high activation. And I think when people understand what their nervous system is doing and they have a little mini toolkit that's always present with them, they can intervene and then show up in a different way. I think that's the most important thing we can do. So, really building our own personal toolkits around nervous system remodeling and rewiring, I think is key and like, honestly, I think all of us should be in therapy. Like I have a yeah. therapist. I have my talk therapist through the physician support program. I have a social innovation coach mm-hmm. and I have a psychedelic and somatic therapist because mm-hmm. that's a whole other, you know, can of worms. I don't know if you want to dump into, but I, I really think there's a benefit to therapy and psychedelics. There's one area that a lot of physicians are kind of scared of. It's a bit of a black box, but I think mm-hmm. In the next 10 years, it's going to open up some new pathways to healing that will be very interesting.
0: It's really exciting. I love Tim Ferriss's podcast, and he's been really instrumental in a lot of the work around psychedelics. And so I've been reading a lot, listening, and this is one area I think is really fascinating in medicine, where there's this sort of emerging area, emerging evidence, but a lot of resistance from the medical community around this topic. What are your thoughts about that? Do you have thoughts on how we as individuals embark on a path to... Pushing aside some of those dogmas that we've held.
1: What I'm loving in all of your line of questioning, Melanie, is just how curious you are. Like you are just such a curious being. And I think that's key Mm -hmm. is getting really curious. Like is the social construct that we were sold consensus reality? Or is it just something that was fabricated? So when the early research on psychedelic medicine was being done in the 1960s, there was a couple of kind of culty guys who maybe cross some boundaries with students and would just like bring stuff to parties. And it kind of became a whole thing where it was an us of like the status quo establishment against these students who were seen as very wild. Mm. And they just wanted to put a lid on it. And the easiest lid for them to reach on was the war on drugs that they were trying to rebrand as a way to entrench racism and slavery. Mm-hmm. So they, they just kind of put it all in one basket and mm-hmm. said, this is a way to take care of our problems that would upset the apple cart of our very comfortable status quo that we're living in. And someone took the lid off of the basket on psychedelics, at least. And it was amazing that the research still holds up. It's tremendously effective for PTSD. Mm-hmm. And we really don't have any medications that work for it. Like I could give someone a beta blocker or processing in yeah. computer, like an alpha blocker, just to like help with their sympathetic nervous system responses so that their brain thinks they're calming down. Is it doing anything in terms of reprogramming the mind's foundational belief system no, <laughs> but we're used to putting a lot of band aids on things. Yes. So I think psychedelics are one of the few paths that can allow us to remodel some of those pathways. But there's plenty of other things, like the mm-hmm. amount of trauma therapies that I use. I mean, some of it I call quantum therapy. Like I feel like I'm going back in time with the person mm-hmm. and changing the experience of their past. Wow. It is amazing the utility. Accelerated resolution therapy to mm-hmm. me. best one. You can learn that in a three-day weekend. Mm -hmm. Yes, it takes a lot of time out of your day to do it, but the cost-benefit analysis is just, it's incredible the Mm. difference you get on the other side. I do a lot of body-based practices like havening, which is changes your brain waves, your delta and theta waves increase and calms your whole brain patterns down. So psychedelics are one pathway towards shifting our Neural wiring and neuroplasticity, but there are so many other pathways, and we're Mm -hmm. just not taught any of them. Yes. So, I'm excited about psychedelics in particular. There's legal ketamine clinics. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of them are doing a much more clinical work. Like as we talked about, this shared humanity and Mm -hmm. setting being so important. I I'd like to see it a little less clinical and a little Mm -hmm. bit more connected and community based. There is great work being done around psilocybin and trying to Mm -hmm. push for more, they call it section 56 exemptions that they're mostly getting now for palliative care, but they're starting to apply for those in the context of PTSD as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, something like psilocybin, when they're examining the harms that it does to the individual and society compared to all of the other illicit and non-illicit drugs out there, smoking and alcohol do far more greater harms in both of those contexts than Mm -hmm. psilocybin would. So I hope they decriminalize all Mm -hmm. drugs, chemicals, but that one in particular would be really helpful.
0: That's been my kind of perception just starting to learn. It's exciting to have an opportunity like this to make some real changes for all of us, for our patients, for ourselves as we move forward. It's exciting that there are so many options. As we're starting to wrap up, it's been just amazing to have this conversation with you. Are there tools on your own journey that you've used to... I guess, foster this expansion of what you've realized was possible for yourself. You've mentioned you were writing the whole time, but getting your book out in the world, doing all these other initiatives, what has supported you on this?
1: A lot of what I see as my meaning in the world is predicated on the concept of equity. And Mm -hmm. as I've done my own healing work, I can recognize that my Scottish and Ukrainian ancestors many generations back have gone through very significant trauma because I was always wondered why I was so drawn to equity work. So my roots are deeper than the settler colonial mask that I wear now. And I have that. This is how I show up with privilege, but I, I really want the world to be a more equitable place mm-hmm. for all of us. And I get really fired up around injustice. So that's something that drives me a fair bit. I think a lot of my work has that theme. When it comes to how I show up in the world, I have this unique skill set around knowledge translation. Like I mm. have the ability to examine really complex topics and break it down into a way that's manageable. Mm. That's why I joined TikTok is cuz mm. like that's one thing I can do and I thought the book would be useful in that way. So part of my doctoral research is trying to figure out well what does that look like going forward? If I want to show up in a good way, if I want to decolonize my own framework mm-hmm. and then try to work better on equity, how do I use my particular skill set, like my mm-hmm. master's in medical education, the work that I do in refugee and addiction medicine, these trauma skills? Like, what is a good path going forward? Mm-hmm. So, I think really deep self reflection and self reflection around not just who am I showing up in terms of my positive functions and my intentions, but also the inadvertent shadows. I think we give ourselves that leeway and I think it's it's important for us to do it as individuals and communities and organizations. Shadow work, I would say is another one, but what I like to say I show up with is what you really exhibit is curiosity and then flexibility. The opposite of trauma isn't being happy all the time. The opposite of trauma is having a flexible menu of of human experiences and a flexible pathway in front of you. So a trauma response is kind of locked into how you respond to threat, mm. and then when you've healed from that, it just means you have more paths. Mm. And I think that's what's been really great for me is I feel like I've opened up lots of paths, and I've been able to journey down many of them and explore. So That kind of exploring, adventuring, but it takes the healing to be able to open the paths up.
0: Hmm. That's such an important message. Thank you so much for sharing all of this wisdom with us. It's been amazing. I want to share with everyone where people can connect with you and where they can follow up with you.
1: I have a website that connects people to message me, which is just christinegibson.net. So Christine with a C-H. The website for my book is moderntrauma.com. And modern trauma is, I've got those socials, but I'm not using them a ton. If any of your listeners are on TikTok, and I'm sure it's just a really small handful, but I'm TikTok trauma doc there. And I really enjoy that community. I hope that they don't make it illegal and take the whole thing away. It's been really joyful, like mm-hmm. learning and seeing so many other creators doing advocacy work and mental health work there. Mm-hmm. It's not just people singing and dancing. Although you can do that too, if you wanted to do it in a safe way, <laughs> I'm really passionate about systems change and self-healing, not just the individual body, but the collective body in medicine. So I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you and getting the word out. Thanks so much, Christine.
0: I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for all that you're sharing with the world right now. It's so important. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. I hope you found this episode transformational in some way that you can take some nugget from this conversation and apply it to your lives. I would love to connect with you further about this topic. You can send me an email at hello at melaniewelch.ca or you can connect with me on Instagram where I'm at. Melanie Welch and I am running a survey on my website if you could take a quick minute out of your time to complete this very brief survey about your needs I am going to be putting people's names in a draw for Starbucks gift cards if you complete the survey so you can find that at melaniewelch.ca and just click on three quick questions the key messages from this important episode are number one how can you foster a more generalist approach to your life how can you leverage your different interests and skill sets number two Traumatic experiences in childhood increase the risk of many mental health and physical conditions. Trauma can be healed. Number three, we can't provide care for others if we aren't well with ourselves. Number four, there's a balance between true connection with others and maintaining our own psychological safety. Number five, trauma is much more prevalent than we have known and the events and circumstances that cause trauma are unique to each individual. Number six, for us to show up the way we want, the first step is balancing our own nervous system. Number seven, attunement matters to our relationships and we can't be attuned until we are regulated ourselves in our own ventral vagal system. Number eight, as caregivers, it is key for us to recognize and acknowledge our own traumas and to do the work of healing. Number nine, The three stages of trauma therapy include number one, safety and grounding, noticing our own nervous system, number two, shifting away from stress responses, and number three, resourcing. The programs that are set up to help us manage our wellness are often not taking it past the first stage. Number 10, being trauma-informed starts with building our own toolkit around remodeling and rewiring our nervous system. Number 11, The opposite of trauma is not being happy all the time. The opposite of trauma is having a flexible menu of human experiences available to us and more options for paths forward.
1: Thank you again for being here. I hope you have a wonderful week.